Hello there, servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. Now, what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to be talking about Greece threatening to leave the EU unless it gets what it wants, the AstraZeneca dispute between Europe and Britain, and the military takeover of the Burmese government. All that and more coming up. Alrighty, let's get into the rapid fire news. A New Jersey recycling plant is up in flames over the weekend. An Italian government, well, the Italian government, is in flux as the Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte resigns. Um, now, we talked about that on our last couple episodes, um, namely about the potential for the n- a new election. Uh, snap elections, as the government was not holding, and by government, I mean a coalition of parties, because it's a parliamentary system in Europe, so it's a little different from what we have in America. But um, on the last episode that we talked about this, we had covered that the government just barely managed to hold on uh, to power, and now their prime minister has resigned, so all whole bets are off the table and looking more and more like they're going to head towards some sort of new election uh, to determine the course of the country, an election which it looks like the political right in Italy is poised to win um, unless something happens uh, that sabotages their current political standing or maybe if the polls are just wrong. But we'll see how that plays out over these next few weeks. Uh, We have hundreds arrested in Russia over the Navalny protests. Now, uh, I haven't exactly been covering um, the Navalny poisoning scandal all that much. Um, Namely because it doesn't seem too relevant. I guess that's an oversight on my part because now we have countries like the UK and even America... Uh, discussing imposing new sanctions on Russia over them arresting these people who are protesting. Uh, And the basic rundown of the situation is uh, Alexander Navalny is like a political opposition to Putin. Um, As far as I know, he's not like super duper popular in Russia itself. He does have a following, obviously, in Russia, but he's not like... It wouldn't be like the difference between a Republican candidate and a Democrat candidate in America. Like, not quite on par, but he is an opposition leader nonetheless. And what we have here uh, that led to this was Navalny uh, got on an airplane. I think this was way back in, like, late summer of 2020, where he had got on an airplane to Germany, and he was poisoned. Um, so he was incapacitated for a while and they, essentially Russia, the Russian government was blamed for his poisoning. So that led to a whole bunch of diplomatic, um, a diplomatic exchange of harsh words. Um, I may or may not have touched up on this back when we were talking about, um, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, uh, that was going on between Russia and Germany. Uh, namely over how Germany, despite what they said about this and how they um, are speaking as though they are not fond of the Russians and what the Russians are doing, they're still moving forward with the natural gas pipeline. Um, So actions are a little inconsistent with words, but it created a stink nonetheless. And shortly after he was, well, he was recuperated, uh, he was returned to Russia where he was promptly arrested. I think he was arrested like right as he hit the ground. <laughs> and he was detained indefinitely. And that's what sparked these protests over him. 
and you see you're probably going to see a maybe a story or two in the news as all this goes down I don't expect him to get out of jail. Uh, I'll just say that much. I think cuz from the perspective of the Russians, he his existence has just caused so much trouble. And by the Russians, I'm referring specifically to the Russian government. This guy has just been th- his very existence has caused them all this trouble. He does anything and they get blamed. So, and regardless of whether or not they were actually responsible for his poisoning, um, no, def- nothing definitive on that yet, but given the, given how very quickly people back down from that, you know, in terms of taking action on the poisoning, um, I'm led to believe that there was nothing concrete enough to implicate Russia in that, or the Russian government, but, um... Yeah, I don't expect him to get out of jail. I I think they're going to leave him in there to rot, essentially. Um, And well, they're probably now hoping and praying that it just dies down and people forget him. And then, well, no more Navalny. That, that's what I assume is going to be the Russian government's perspective on this and the course of action they'll take re- uh, regarding Navalny. But... Nevertheless, we have protests over him, and we'll see if they get anything uh, moving, so to speak. Who knows? And it's Russia. Anything could happen. But we're going to move on now. And speaking of protests, we have lockdown protests uh, that have turned to riots in Lebanon and the Netherlands. Now, when I read the story... Uh, it said that the lockdown riots happened in Tripoli, Lebanon, and I was very, very confused, um, and I thought that I basically screwed up my entire last episode when I was talking about Libya, because Tripoli is the, <laughs> Tripoli is a major city in Libya, uh, namely the capital city, so I was very confused and almost panicked, believing I had just did a whole segment on some fake news, <laughs> but no, there's another Tripoli in Lebanon itself. It's also a major city in that country. Apparently, the country's poorest. Um, I guess they make the. I guess they give Tripoli a bad name. But given that the other Tripoli is involved in a civil war, yeah, yeah all things equal. But that was just an interesting little story on the backside of what I do here. But uh, So we have these protests that have turned to riots, and we're seeing more of that across Europe. I covered it in one of my episodes, um, but they the that was back when the protests were just protests. And that was way back, I think, like, what, episode three or four that I had done uh, regarding the COVID lockdowns and how they were pushing governments to the brink. Uh, but now we're at this point where those protests are evolving into riots more often than not. Or I guess I should say devolving into riots more often than not. And I do believe people uh, aren't going to be locked down for much longer uh, without some sort of civil conflict breaking out. Whether or not that rebellion wins is irrelevant. Um, but it appears that these lockdowns are pushing countries towards this... Uh, how do I put it, this, well, conflict uh, within themselves by keeping people from going to work and keeping people from having a, making a living and keeping people from doing the things that they like and seeing people that they love. And the long term of that is now being called in. And we're going to see how governments respond. At least here in America, we seem to be undertaking some sort of you know, reopening. Uh, we have states that were closed for all of 2020, like really hard, like California, New York. They're starting to open up. Chicago's opening up. So it looks like we are on the up and up. So good news for the Biden administration. That'll probably lead to an economic recovery, a full recovery. We're at like six, around 6% unemployment right now. So good news for us, uh, but it appears that the, many other countries aren't there yet, 
or at least they're not committing to reopening. They, there's even talk in France of a third national lockdown. I can only expect that that is only going to go horribly wrong, uh, given the current situation in France. We've talked about that over the last few episodes. I don't think that's going to go very well at all. We, uh, we talked about what happened the last time France went into lockdown, where you had this massive traffic jam of people trying to get out of the city of Paris, and it was a ridiculous sight. People were walking, biking, <laughs> trying to get out of the city however they could. So, I can only imagine what a third national lockdown is going to do to that country. We could be seeing French Revolution 2.0 here, especially given that the yellow vests are still there, and now you have the added bonus of the tensions between French and their Muslim communities spilling over and with the government taking action. A third lockdown is not going to do France any good. I don't think it's going to be worth it uh, if their goal is to reduce COVID deaths. I really don't think it's going to be worth it. But... We'll have to see how that goes, like a whole lot of things. Um, but we're going to move on now while we're still in Europe. This uh, this episode is going to be pretty heavy on Europe. But we have the United Kingdom is applying for membership within the Trans-Pacific Partnership. I found that very interesting. And if it goes well for them, well, you're going to see a British, a stronger British economy that's going to be very alluring for other EU members seeking to leave. Other EU members like Greece, and we're going to talk about Greece in just a little bit. But this is uh, kind of what I was talking about with regards to the perpetual secession crisis. The other side of that coin, which is the United Kingdom getting progressively stronger uh, as after they leave the EU. Because now they're negotiating trade deals. And so, rather than doing individual countries, they've opted for membership within a larger partnership to gain access to multiple countries at once. If it goes well, this is going to be a very excellent move on their part. And it's only going to make the United Kingdom economy stronger. And as time goes on, you're going to see people who were against Brexit start to go, wait a second, oh, maybe we can be on our own. And that will be the death nail for any chance of the United Kingdom being taken back into the EU. Uh, I don't think that those chances would have succeeded right now anyway, given the uh, landslide back in 2019, uh, for which was effectively a second referendum on Brexit. But mm, this is what we're looking at. This is what uh, the EU's worst nightmare is going to be. Again, if these trade deals go well for Britain, which I can assume will more often than not be good, you know, we, again, we'll just have to wait and see on that. And next up, we have the UN. Uh, they are viewing a potential transition government leader for Libya. Now, we talked about Libya in the last episode and how they're going to be going through a transition government in the lead up to their either in the lead up to or after their next election which is in December of this year right before Christmas uh and I made it clear in that episode um I don't think those elections are going to go very well given that we already have a group the Tripoli Protection Force which is a militia in Tripoli so you can see why I was very confused about Tripoli Lebanon but they are already rejecting this process, which means that if the people that they don't want to win in that election doesn't win, well, there goes the election. They're, they're just going to pretend it didn't happen. And they're a very large militia. But the UN is now viewing potential transition government leaders for Libya. Um, I don't know whether or not they will do any better. Um... Maybe they'll have a chance of unifying the country. I don't think so. Because there's a lot of vested interests on the the two existing sides in Libya. Uh, Turkey backing the government. And you have, like, Egypt backing the rebels. 
Egypt and I believe France. Um, I'll have to check up on that. But there's lots of vested interest in the pre-existing sides in Libya. So we'll... Um, uh, I really can't predict how this is going to go. Um, well, actually, I can predict how this is going to go. It's probably not going to go very well. But we hope and pray for miracles. Because, well, maybe they'll get tired of fighting. Maybe something will happen in the days leading up to this election that'll lead the Libyan people um, to be tired of the fighting and they go along with this transition government. And that's the best case scenario I see for this. Otherwise, it's probably going to fail. All right. Um, the two sides are not quite done having it out with one another. And sh should the foreign powers involved get their way, well, one side is going to have to win and it's not going to be an uh, installed transition government leader from the UN. I don't think Turkey is going to back down on this one either. I don't think they feel like having another door shut on them right now. We talked about how Turkey has only one direction left to go. They can't go north into Europe. They can't go north into the Caucasus. Um, which does leave open the Ukraine, but we'll see how long that door stays open. But I make clear on multiple occasions, Turkey has the most to gain from taking over the south. And Egypt is a major roadblock to Turkish hegemony in the Middle East. But if Turkey has access to Libya, who has a land border with Egypt, they could potentially take down Egypt in one way or another should the should push come to shove and they have to actually use their military to do so. They could do it. So, big news in Libya... Um, again, I don't think this transition government's going to go very well. We can hope and pray that it does. I think Turkey will say no. And that, that, that basically is it. But while we're in this region, Tunisia, which is to the northwest of Libya, Tunisia, that little country right there, they have approved the Russian Sputnik V vaccine. So, more countries added to the list for Russia's economic recovery I mean vaccine distribution they're going all in on this vaccine now we we also in other news have Indian farmers in a standoff with police near New Delhi we did talk about that before um, they were that was back when they were marching to the capital so now they're I guess they're there and it was followed by a massive nationwide general strike with like 200 million people participated. So two-thirds of the U.S. population, um, in terms of numbers, were refusing to work. Now they're in a standoff with police. So big things happening domestically in India. Uh, we'll see if it gets exploited by the Chinese. Uh, I think China is focusing elsewhere. Well the majority of their political capital elsewhere right now, namely over Taiwan. We'll, we'll get into those two at, towards the end of the episode, as we usually do, because every time we talk about Asia, it's interesting to look at it in light of the Cold War. But we also have protests in the Somali capital, and this was a, actually a very interesting story I saw. Um, there's protests in the Somali capital after young men, and these were men who are working for the Somali government, who were sent to Qatar, a country right next to Arabia in the Persian Gulf. They were sent to Qatar to work, but unbeknownst to their families, unbeknownst to them, they were secretly being conscripted into the Eritrean military. Now, Eritrea, if you go on a map, and you go find Ethiopia, that's, um, or you can look for Arabia, either one, those should be easy to find. Eritrea is right there next to Djibouti to the north of Ethiopia. So I guess it's easier to look for Ethiopia on a map. When you go to Africa, Eritrea is right there, and then you have Somalia to the east of Ethiopia, so these two are right next to each other. But these men who were working for the Somali government uh, doing jobs in Qatar 
were conscripted into the Eritrean military. And I just found that um, bizarre, um, especially as Somalia is fighting its own war against militants in the remote regions of the country. So why they would send young men to go fight in other people's wars is beyond me. Maybe they're getting money, uh, more money than they're paying to the families uh, when these people die in Eritrea. Because the the story I saw, they gave um, the father of this man who had died, they gave him like $10,000. But um, very interesting little story in East Africa. Um, again, this is a region a part of a region that I see major potential for destabilization. Um, potential for, there's already a civil war in Ethiopia that seems to be coming to a close, but Ethiopia is very mountainous, so the fighting could really carry on for a while right now. The Tigray Rebellion. Um, there's potential for a civil conflict in Sudan with their power truck, with their um, struggle for power. Um, Ethiopia is damming up the Nile, um, which is probably going to cause major civil unrest in Egypt that could cripple their government, opening the door for foreign powers to step in, namely Turkey. Libya is already in civil war. Um, Somalia is fighting. Eritrea is at war. Djibouti has lots of foreign powers based there for anti-piracy operations. This is a ma massive region, This and it has a very, very vast potential for destabilization, because any one of them could be a domino for the other to fall. Like, I think I brought this up with regards to the Tigray Rebellion, and when I was talking about Sudan and their power struggle in the country. <clears throat> but you could have people in, say, Tigray, who crossed the border to escape from the Ethiopian military, and the Ethiopian military crossed the border to pursue them. That could create a diplomatic incident. That could cause something to happen and knock over some dominoes where people start taking actions that they wouldn't have otherwise, and then you have conflict. Or maybe not even organized conflict between governments, but rather you just have militant groups fighting other militant groups across these nations' borders and destabilizing the respective countries in the process to where you have factions rather than a proper functioning government. Um, very interesting things uh, that we've been talking about on this little podcast here, and I guess this t the this round of news is really just um uh seeming like a callback to things we've talked about uh but kind of like an updated version of what we talked about yeah. so much for uh, rapid fire news but uh, we're going to move on to China uh who amidst violations of Taiwanese airspace they have asserted to Taiwan that independence means war didn't i just bring up China putting their political capital over Taiwan. So this is what I was talking about when I said that China may be preoccupied, too preoccupied to put too much political capital into destabilizing India with the, the Indian workers revolting right now. This is what I was talking about, where they're inc making incursions over Taiwanese airspace and, well, basically stating that independence means war. Because Taiwan has lately been moving in a pro-independence direction uh, rather than a one-China policy type direction. So we'll see how um, the other countries in the region respond to this. We'll see how America responds to this under the Biden administration. Uh, a whole lot of things that we just have to wait and see. But the situation is unfolding before our very eyes. We have the Afghan president, Ashraf Ghani, in a speech. He said that NATO wants to stay in Afghanistan and that they need U.S. support to do so. And now this comes ahead of the May deadline for the total withdrawal of U.S. slash foreign troops. Now, 
This is why in my other episode, I brought up the reason to address certain things under the Biden administration. See, if Trump was still in office, I probably wouldn't even need to um, speculate on where this is going to go. Because the direction this was going to go was troops would be withdrawn completely in May. Because um, it was Trump who put us on that path towards full withdrawal after he fired um, the other Secretary of Defense, I believe, who was hiding the troop presences in Syria. So he fired him, put in someone new, and now all these plans that he was trying to do have been moving forward. We're under a new administration now, so there is the potential that Biden could be pressured into not withdrawing troops from Afghanistan. I pray he does not fall victim to those pressures, and that he follows through on this good policy to get us out of Afghanistan. Only time will tell. We have until May. So, that's it for the rapid fire news. And I guess we'll get into the meat. Whoa, my goodness. 25 minutes. That's half the episode. You know, looking at this list of rapid fire, I did not expect it to take up this much time. But... Lots of interesting things to talk about today, I guess, even on the rapid fire news. Now, we will get into the meat in just a minute. All right, now we're getting into a late segment of the meat, but I guess it's fair because the meat seems to be shorter. Well, I don't know. The, the rapid fire news looked short on the list, but we'll see how we go. I always underestimate my ability to ramble, but we're going to be talking primarily about the EU. We'll get into Burma uh, towards the end. And an interesting thing that happened just hours ago. Um, so, let no one tell you that the world is not changing, folks. Now, let no one tell you that we won't watch it together. But that is not the end of the episode, so we're going to talk about Greece. Now, a Greek leader, if I believe he is a uh, secretary in the government, uh, not like a get-you-coffee secretary, but like a uh, high-ranking secretary, um... Greek leader Varoufakis threatens to leave the Eurozone unless policies he views as corrupt were reformed or abolished. Um, the Eurozone being the region that uses the Euro as its primary currency. Now, Varoufakis blames the EU for destroying the Greek economy. Um, now, that alone isn't all that important, aside from the prospect of another country leaving the EU, the perpetual secession crisis that I talked about. But what's interesting here is that we have a minor EU member state effectively holding its membership within the EU hostage to get concessions on EU policymaking. You know, in hindsight... I should have seen this coming, but I was not even thinking about this. I was not even thinking about this. I thought that they would just leave or they would threaten to they would threaten to hold referendums and then those referendums would get either blocked or they would go through. And then they would play games for 4 years uh pretending that the referendum to leave didn't happen. <laughs> Brexit. <laughs> but I was not expecting, for whatever reason, that a member state would just hold their membership hostage to get concessions out of the EU. And given Greece's, um, well, getting put on the backpedal by EU policymakers, especially ever since the um, 2008, basically, when they had to bail Greece out, Greece... Um, is in a perfect position to hold this institution hostage. Like, this is the most power Greece has had over the EU. Um, should the government adopt this? Oh, I'm not gonna... I shouldn't pretend that this one guy is representative of the entire government. But should the Greek government adopt his position... Um, of holding their membership hostage to get concessions, we could be looking at a Greece that holds way more sway in the EU than it arguably should, and way more sway than it ever has before. Especially given its 
not a large economy in the EU anymore, not since the financial crisis, and especially not since they had to get bailed out. But this is very interesting. And I now that it's happened, there's the potential for other countries to do the same, to hold their hostage, to hold their hostage, to hold their membership in the EU hostage to get things they want out of the EU, which is basically a reversal of what things that have been going on in the EU itself, where the EU forces other forces its member states to make concessions to the EU for unity and solidarity and whatnot. What we have here is a reversal of that. I did not expect this to happen. Again, that's major oversight on my part. But now that it has happened, there's the potential for others to follow suit. The unofficial precedent rule is going to come into effect on this one. I can almost guarantee you that it will. Because this is too powerful. It's a, this is a very powerful tool, especially now that Brexit has happened. Brexit is real. So the threat of other countries leaving the EU is also real and can be used for leverage. Um, again, this is Greece is likely not going to be the last country to do this, especially as Euroscepticism continues to sweep across the continent. And all I have to say is, Lord have mercy on Europe. But now, we're going to go on to the AstraZeneca feud. Now, this is a feud uh, between the EU and the UK over AstraZeneca's vaccine production and distribution. AstraZeneca being a country producing the vaccine, the COVID-19 vaccine, and in, uh, dang, in Europe. Thank you, brain. Now, the EU wants the country to deliver more vaccines to Europe, even if at British expense. Um, this comes as AstraZeneca is upholding their contract with the British government um, instead of servicing European nations to the same extent. Um, and the interesting thing here is that the EU, uh, up until I think it was two days ago, had yet to actually approve of the vaccine, they're, they're equivalent to the U.S. FDA. They had not approved of the vaccine over the course of this entire feud. So that's an interesting thing to keep in mind. But uh, before this happened, a number of European countries had previously signed contracts with AstraZeneca. However... The EU intervened to negotiate on behalf of their member states, and this is what caused the shortages that were seen across the continent. And Spain was forced to halt all vaccinations after they ran out of doses. Now, a vaccine production site, amidst this, was raided under suspicion that the company, uh, AstraZeneca, was shipping vaccines produced in Europe to non-European countries like Britain. Uh, now, the context for this is that the EU had put up an export ban for the vaccines, which if you look at uh, who actually was barred from receiving vaccines made in Europe, you will find that Britain is by itself. The Balkans, Norway, Belarus, the Ukraine, all of North Africa, Israel, Lebanon, Syria, Arabia, Jordan, Iraq, Iran, the Caucasus, Iceland and Greenland are not EU members. They are all exempt from the export ban. Britain, who is also not an EU member, is not exempt from the export ban. Now this has led to major backlash, especially from Ireland, who the EU promised would be allowed to have a, la a very lax border with the UK, this is a major point of contention during the British um, Brexit negotiations, uh, the border with Ireland and Northern Ireland. And they effectively agreed to have the conversation at a later date, but to keep them relatively open to avoid conflict. Because the two used to be at war, uh, Ireland and Northern Ireland over religion, uh, Protestant in Northern Ireland, Catholic in regular Ireland. So there's that, and 
the EU, during the Brexit negotiations, promised to have a very lax border with the UK for Ireland. For Ireland. Ireland would be allowed to have that. But this entire situation uh, effectively caused massive backlash because they went back on that with their vaccine export ban, which is almost effectively exclusively targeted at Britain, which means no lax border with the UK because they put up travel bans between them and the UK over the new strain of the COVID-19 virus. Then they put up an export ban. They put up the travel ban. They put up a whole number of barriers between the EU and Britain. And people are noticeably upset with them over this. This entire situation ultimately seems to have ended as an EU blunder. Um, And I say that because the fallout has led to calls even from major member states of the EU like Germany, it has led to calls for Ursula von der Leyen, and Ursula von der Leyen is the president of the European Commission, which is effectively Europe's executive branch. It's led to calls for her to resign. And whether or not she will remains to be seen, but that's where we are. That's how badly the situation has backfired on Europe, And, well, can you blame the people angry at Europe? They intervened on behalf of their member states and failed to negotiate a deal for the vaccines, whereas Britain had negotiated a deal for the vaccines and were getting vaccines. But because some of those were being produced in within the borders of the EU, they were effectively raided and confiscated. But there wasn't enough being sent to Europe because the Europeans had not, well, the European Union had not arranged for the vaccines to be produced. They hadn't bought them yet, so they couldn't be produced for Europe yet. And obviously the countries who had previously negotiated their own deals with AstraZeneca, namely France and I believe Spain, Obviously, they're going to be upset about this because they negotiated the deal. And then the EU stepped in and screwed them, basically. And now nobody gets vaccine. Spain ran out. So a lot of people are going to be very upset with the EU over this. And given the perpetual secession crisis that the EU is now in, this is not going to help them at all. This is not going to help them at all. I imagine... That whenever Italy has their next elections, the political right in Italy, should they form a coalition and win that election, they're going to use this. A whole lot of Euroskeptic parties in Europe are going to use this, and Italy seems primed to do so. Greece is already holding their membership hostage. It's not looking good for the EU. I'll just say that much. It's really not. But now, we'll we'll get into the very, very, very interesting thing that I saw yesterday, uh, gathering up some final news for this uh, Monday podcast. And that is that Burma, uh, otherwise known as Myanmar, their president, Aung San Suu Kyi, I believe that's how I pronounce it. It's spelled a bit weird, but I'll give it my best shot. Aung San Suu Kyi and other government officials were arrested. And again, this story took place just hours ago. They were arrested over irregularities in Myanmar's November 8th election between the National League of Democracy, the NLD, and the Union Solidarity and Development USD parties. Now, the USD is very closely aligned with the military, and this does raise uh, reasonable questions over a potential conflict of interest um, with the military effectively ousting the people who seem to have won the election. Um, So, probably some tomfoolery going on. Either 
tomfoolery and irregularities in the election or potentially tomfoolery in that the military is claiming that there's irregularities because they lost. We'll see how this goes. Again, this this very, very new story. Um, but some quick context for this situation. Um, the country, Burma, was run by the military up until 2016. Now, in 2016, they began a transfer to a civilian-led government in which the National League of Democracy, the party that the president who was arrested, um, President Suu Kyi, um, that was her party. Um, they won back in 2016 and be during this transfer to civilian-led government, and now she is arrested. So now we're going to have to wait and see what happens. But while we wait to see what happens in Burma itself, we can take a step back and just really appreciate the very dangerous neighborhood that Burma is in. I'm obviously referring to the elephants in the room, or the dragon in the room, if you feel. And that would be India and China. Now, the story is... Uh, want to really stress this that the story is very young and is still unfolding so the response by either india or china largely remains to be seen although we have seen the u.s secretary of state antony blinken uh he has called for suki to be released by from the control of the military and japan has stated that they will not repatriate burmese people Burmese, uh, Burmese nationals um, back to their country given that some of them I believe there was an ethnicity I forget the name uh, I forgot to write it down but there was an ethnicity who was being persecuted and they fled Japan is now saying that they're not going to repatriate them uh, especially in light of what many uh, are calling a military coup now We'll see who ends up being right in this situation, whether it's a coup or if there was legit irregularities in the election that warranted the military stepping in. Maybe this is just the military not being used to not being in control. Maybe there was actual election fraud. Who knows? Very eerily similar to claims about our own election here in America, but uh, we're not allowed to talk about that. <laughs> But, um, yeah, a very interesting story, but in light of where Burma is, the elephant and the dragon in the room should be addressed, because I feel that sooner or later, one of them's going to step in, uh, in one way, shape, or form, and once one of them does, the other one will, uh, especially given that this is the Indochina region, um, the peninsula to the east of India and to the south of China that I have stated and have been partially proven to be correct on, I believe this is going to be the zone that is most hotly contested between the two giants, which means, and that's largely because they have like no room to maneuver here, and these are every bit of ground that you lose in this region uh, brings you closer to someone, a certain someone, whether India or China, having another land border with you. <laughs> Except it's an indirect border because it's another country that they can move through, but you can't. Countries that are aligned against you rather than with you on your border. Land borders are always a challenge for land powers. Namely... Um, the fact that China and India are land powers. China is building a navy, but they already have a long border as it is. And I think both of them would appreciate not having a border with another hostile entity. This is going to get drawn up. I mean, this is going to get caught up in the Cold War. It just remains to be seen exactly how. Um... Or maybe the situation gets resolved fast, or maybe the two countries are preoccupied enough to where this goes under the radar. I don't believe that it will go under the radar, but I do believe there's a potential 
that the two are preoccupied enough currently that they may not get involved for long enough that the situation can resolve itself. But I'm not entirely sure on how fast the Burmese will be able to resolve this situation, nor am I sure how long the Indians and Chinese are going to be preoccupied with other things. Again, India has unrest at home with their farmers revolting against them. And, well, not all of their farmers, but farmers in the northeast of the country who've marched to the capital, they're revolting. India's dealing with that. And China is busy beating drums over Taiwanese airspace. And they're probably going to be preoccupied with those two things. I don't know if those two things are going to be long-term or not. Because um, China is really on and off with their provocations over Taiwan. They're probably trying to see how Biden is going to respond to this. And if they like what they see... Or at the very least, if they can learn something from the experience, they'll probably continue their preparations to take the island back in one way or sh another. And India, um, yeah, we don't know how long the farmers are going to be protesting, or whether or not the Indian government will just give them concessions, or if the Indian government will allow them to protest and then put them down violently at some point in the future. We don't know. So, Burma could be in a very lucky position right now, given the timing that this took place. Maybe it was coordinated, maybe it wasn't. But, very dangerous neighborhood that they're in, and very dangerous times <laughs> to be having this conversation between the military and their civilian government. But I guess if there ever was a time, it would be when the two nations most likely to interfere in your politics are distracted. So we'll see how this story unfolds like a whole lot of others. But uh, I did find this one very, very, very interesting because it's not every day you have the military take power of a government. Um, I know it almost happened in Turkey and then they failed and now Erdogan went on a massive great purge of the military which is why I believe he is now uh, deploying his troops everywhere at once to give them combat experience uh, and potentially get a new brass of leadership trained in the ways of modern warfare. They'll probably rewrite the rules of war for their region, but that'll be a topic for a different day. <clears throat> Excuse me. But I guess we'll get into our closing thoughts in just a moment. Alright, I'm going to start wrapping up the show here. Lots and lots of developments on things that we have talked about, combined a little bit of things we haven't. Um, actually, pretty surprised on how much of it we have actually talked about, and I guess that's the power of a weekly podcast that you're on episode 19 of. So yeah, big shout out to us. You know, I always knew that we could do it, but... um. Yeah, what really surprises me is how I was able to remember all these things that I talk about because, you know, it's kind of hard to remember what you rant about. But I guess, I guess it just goes to show what, uh, I guess, putting things you like to do into an organized format can do for you. Uh, very interesting times ahead. Um, I guess I'll stress again that that Greek... The situation in Greece really threw me for a loop. I was, man, these it's these tiny, it's the small countries, it's the little things that just get you. That in hindsight, we really should have seen this coming. Just like uh, with Iraq cutting back their oil, um, their oil exports to Asia, um, we should have known that, oh, the oil cuts that OPEC was trying to get was eventually going to lead to competition between the major oil consumers in East Asia. We should, I sh well, I should have known, okay? I'm the one with the podcast. I should have known, but I completely overlooked it. And that's why it's the little things. And again, while we're on the topic of little things, I 
deliberately didn't cover the Navalny things, the Navalny poisoning scandal, because I didn't see how it was relevant. But here we are, where we're talking about new uh, sanctions on Russia over this, and people are getting arrested over this. It's always the little things, and even though I know this, it's always the little things that you don't look at that ends up being the things that have the really, really impactful impact, the really big impact. There we go. So, uh, I guess the way you can compare it would be a someone assassinating an archduke and say, Bosnia. <laughs> okay. We're not going to talk about World War One, but we're not going to, well, we're not going to compare what's happening today with World War One. but I guess maybe we could, because, again, every little thing counts. We don't know what little thing in what country whose name we do not know could spark something far larger that we, in hindsight, might have seen coming, but in the heat of the moment, we would have never, ever predicted and by we, I mean me. How could I have predicted that this would happen? But, uh, yeah. We'll have to see how a whole lot of this plays out and continues to play out. And I will be here to cover it for you. So we can have a nice time here on our Monday afternoons. But, that being said, that is all I have for today. I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. And the world is changing and evolving and changing. And we are going to have fun watching it together. Now, I have been your host, Haishan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus. Mm-hmm.